0: Security Monkeys, thanks for listening to another episode of StatusSecurity.com, the podcast. And uh, before we kind of get started this time around, I just want to spend a quick moment introducing this month's topic. So, we're going to take a little bit of a change from our normal interview process. And this time, I sat down with Adam Luck, also known as Lucky Pony. And we were kind of just sitting in the studio riffing on Ashley Madison and some of the events around that and the way the community and the media have responded to it. And I think we caught a pretty good segment of our discussion around just exactly how complex online privacy has become and just what some of the longer-term fallouts might be from things like Ashley Madison when we convert from Uh, very simple kinds of of database breaches and and PII leakage to things that really have social and, in some cases, even uh, fatal uh, types of of impacts. So I think this is a great conversation. There's a lot of stuff going on in it. Uh, After that, we'll segue into another short, this time around John Davis, and uh, he's going to drop some wisdom bombs there. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Microsolved, that's uh, my company, and uh, this time around, the product that we wanted to focus on this month is our Tiger Tracks code of conduct uh, monitoring. So we're doing uh, this for about the last year and a half now. Uh, We've created a system that can monitor the online social media behavior of folks uh, and compare it to a, a code of conduct. So we're doing this for some professional sports teams. Uh, We've got some corporate and commercial clients in in the mix that are doing things like monitoring for uh, trader behavior for uh, high regulatory financial traders and stuff like that, Uh, looking for soft trades inside trade information or trade leakage. Uh, It can do some things like monitor customer service behaviors, It can do brand uh, monitoring for folks that are representing your brand online. uh, And it's a part of our new Tiger Tracks platform rollout that we've done uh, over the last couple of years. So if you want to learn more about that and uh, talk to someone about uh, Tiger Tracks Code of Conduct monitoring, please feel free to just reach out, get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, of course, at Microsolved, that's S-O-L-V-E-D or, of course, info at microsolved.com. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to the podcast. And coming right at you is Adam J. Luck and myself as we riff on what online privacy might mean post-Ashley Madison. All right, I hope everybody's having a great time out there. Here it comes. See you soon. i Brent Houston again from stateofsecurity.com, the podcast, and uh, I'm not even going to bore you with what the weather's like today. It's been sort of uh, monotonous now for a few, uh, few weeks, and I'm sitting here in the MSI studios and I'm joined by my good friend, Adam Luck, who you guys also may know as Lucky Pony. That's P-W-N-Y, Lucky Pony. What are you on Twitter? uh adam j luck adam j luck mm-hmm. and there there's like an at sign or something in yeah front of that. at some point in there yeah and then like on instagram there's like an eye inside of a special circle or something
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, whatever that is today <laughs> so uh this episode is going to be a little different my security peeps uh we're gonna riff on a couple of topics together so it's going to be much less interview style and a little more just kind of us riffing on a topic because i think it's it's uh Sort of interesting. So if you've already looked at the show notes and the title of this thing, we're going to talk a little bit about the new hotness uh, that is Ashley Madison. And then we're going to try to turn that into less social pariah, more like actual understanding and impact. Right. Like we hope that'll come through (laughs) at some point. We hope that'll come through uh, in the end. Um, So this is going to be a little bit more relaxed of an episode. So before we kind of get into that, uh, the listeners probably know everything there is to know about me, but why don't you tell them a little bit about about you, Lucky
1: Pony? Um I've been at MSI actually just coming up on a year now as a senior engineer, and previously my background was a variety of information security and systems administration roles within the healthcare and retail industry. And you are a you're a very social online guy. Like you use the
0: internet Socially, it's a part of your day to day life, um, but also, you know, for your, you're quite engaged in political conversations and sort of higher level social, uh, academic kinds of studies and
1: such. Yeah, absolutely. I've, anytime I put myself out there in the public like that, I always weigh the consequences of it because it is additional exposure. And it's information that I put out there about myself that people, in one way or the other, could use against me. And it's a conscious decision I choose to make because I'm more aware of what can happen when that information is introduced into the web. Yeah, but, but I think you, other people aren't. But you use social media. I mean yeah.
0: you're, you're clearly all over the web, and you use it as a part of your everyday life. Mm-hmm. So there is you know, – it is to some extent that risk versus reward, right? Like, you, okay, sure, somebody could profile you, know what your favorite sports teams are and, and that kind of stuff. But at the same time, the reward that you get from having that content out there is, um, is greater than the risk that is going on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If it allows me to stay in touch with my friends and family and meet new connections, I'm okay with somebody being able to build a social engineering attack against me based on the information that I put out there. But for other people, they need to be aware of that risk every time they choose to display a photo of themselves at a restaurant or choose yeah. to talk about their beliefs. And I don't think everybody's doing that. And I hope that people listening to this podcast at least it gets into the back of their mind at the end of the day
0: yeah and so we're telling you this little bit of background about pony so that you can understand because he's new to the podcast here but uh you know we want you to just uh feel a little bit more comfortable about him because uh we both are social media you know users we're both very social at least i would hope i'm social media (laughs) savvy uh at this point but um i go through this same struggle so like uh, I run a number of businesses. Is it better to have that information out there when i 'm the front end for the business i'm the face of the business um, you know versus my privacy and trying to and trying to respect my privacy so it 's hard enough <clears throat> excuse me it 's been hard enough uh, for the last few years with things like Facebook and instagram and and all of these ways to communicate and put data out there about you. But now like there's this new hotness right like in the hacking and security world the last like couple of weeks have all been about this Ashley Madison thing so like if some of the listeners were living under a rock or they were living in Iraq um why don't you start by kind of telling the Ashley Madison story what like what is the site about what's its value proposition how did it kind of uh, talk about it itself? Not that you're an expert, but by now we've all gone and looked at it, right? So yeah, tell I, us
1: the story. You know, being a security engineer, we are interested in every type of hack and what the motives are specifically. And with this one, it was interesting because Ashley Madison is basically a social portal like we discussed earlier, only the fact is it's meant to link people up who are attempting to have an affair outside of their marriage. And so because of that, these communications people assumed were private, not like what Brett and I referenced earlier with our social media posts about sports or political views or really any of our general interests. Those are conscious decisions we made to be public. But every bit of communications that was occurring within the Ashley Madison website was people looking to have an affair. So they assumed that that communication was going to be held private and secured by the third party. But the third party was actually attacked by a group of sophisticated attackers who mentioned publicly that they had stolen the information. They decided to wait a little bit and give the organization some time to make a few adjustments, and they ended up leaking all the information, which included user databases and gigs and gigs of the CEO's emails. Now,
0: what I don't want to do, and I know you and I have had a number of discussions around this in the last couple of weeks, and listeners, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but we are not going to get into the morality of the site or anything like that. Uh, you can, Everybody can set their own moral compass. Everybody can make their own decisions. But essentially, what you have here is a social network. And this social network was based around, uh, let's say, the idea of more adult-oriented content. Mm-hmm. Um and I do want to say it wasn't just for married people hoping to have an affair. There were, um, there were other avenues by which you could uh, end up here. Like if, for example, you were a single person looking to enter into a polyamorous type relationship with someone who was, who was also married or um, maybe having an affair with a married person was your gig um, that, you know, you could end up at the site or maybe you just wanted to communicate or, Maybe some people went there because they thought that they could commiserate with other people about whatever problems they had. So it, without being laying down any judgment, what we essentially had was a social media network where you thought that all of the communication in that social media environment and all the connections that you made inside that environment would remain private. And unfortunately, that turned out to not be true. So um, that's sort of the Ashley Madison story. You can read out there. There's a whole bunch of stuff that talks about uh, all the parts of it that are unsavory. But there are a couple of things here that are sort of interesting. The, the first one, let's talk about the sign-up process. So the, the sign-up process, for those of, of you who don't know, um, when you came to the Ashley Madison site and you signed up for an account, you put in an email and some other information, but they did not send out a validation email back to you that you had to click on. So, so you could set up an account with a fake email that you could use to access the system. They didn't follow even that basic sign-up process. Now what's interesting about that, you know, Pony is that essentially what you're hearing now, and I just saw yesterday on like uh, NPR and read uh, right on their website, like some people are starting to come forward and say, um, you know, people stole my identity, and and you know I wasn't on the site, and they they've actually formed a class action now to to sue those guys.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so you know, just based on that process, like the the dumping of the names that occurred and and all of that. Uh, you know, you do have to be somewhat suspect because just because somebody's name or, or email address appears in there doesn't mean they actually signed up and, and got confirmed or that was actually them, right? So what, you know, you're you're quite a bit younger than me. What is the feel amongst your peers about that? Has there been a lot of talk about what it means to appear in that,
1: that list of dumped people? You know, it's been interesting because a lot of the conversations that I've had with people in my age group are not, oh, is so-and-so on here or anything like that and passing judgments against them. It's mostly around, were they doing it during work hours? Were they using work equipment? Yeah. Because just about everybody i talked to has had either a suspicion or incidents that have already been discussed at their offices. Because not only is it making the company look bad from a reputational standpoint, but Certain people in high-profile roles, it makes them more likely to be blackmailed.
0: Yeah, so you've got so you have this situation though where they could have turned up. I mean, like Obama at WhiteHouse.gov was in there. Now clearly, uh, it, it's irreverent to believe that uh, you know Obama went and signed up with his official government account and that he was a, a practitioner there. But you could sign up for anything. And so since that occurred, there is sort of this. Uh, ambiguous oh it wasn't me there's like this you know way to get out of of uh, whatever the social norm has been about it Um, however there is and there there were accounts on there that were associated with credit cards Mm -hmm. right and so these are folks who either who paid for some sort of service through the site and they they at least got validated to the point that uh whoever the credit card processor is, you know, managed the account and managed to put a charge against their account. So when folks are are looking at these dumps and and maybe they're thinking about, you know, checking to see whether it's people within their company or their friends, you know, there's a lot of that kind of ha, ha, ha you know, was Bob on the list kind of stuff going around. Um, even if Bob turns up on the list or Mary turns up on the list, um, they, that doesn't mean anything, mm-hmm. right, in the, in the
1: beginning, right? Yeah, depending on what information is stored about them, if you just have the name and email address, it's very possible it wasn't actually that person signing up. But like you mentioned, if their credit card information is in there, that leads to a higher like, or likelihood that it was actually them. Now, the other information I'm going to be curious to see if it's leveraged more and more is the IP addresses that were stored. It stores your IP address when you signed up, and I believe during the credit card transaction. Yeah. So that could also be another piece of evidence that ties it back to that individual that makes it more difficult for them to deny actually signing up themselves.
0: Yeah, and there's – I mean there's just a lot of odd stuff going on around this. Now, from the impact team, the, that, that is the group of hackers who uh, claim to have dumped this, uh, uh, this data and claim to have stolen it. They – they have said from the beginning that part of what you know drove them around it was the idea that these guys offered a service for, wasn't it like $19 or something? Um, you're shaking your head yes, but they can't see you shake your head. So, so Penny agrees that it was $19. Um, but they offered this service for $19 so that after you had signed up and you would pay this $19 and they would remove your account. Now, what happened, though, Pony, when when you paid that $19? Because it doesn't sound like they actually removed your account.
1: Well, from my understanding, they may have removed the account, but it wasn't from the actual database itself. So the information about you was still stored within their records, even if it wasn't publicly accessible through their interface. So even if you paid that extra money to have your account deleted, you most likely still showed up in this breach. So what's interesting, too, is tied to this was
0: not only – Things like your name and address and, and, you know, other identifier information, but there was some fairly sensitive stuff in here. Not, not just the fact that maybe you were, uh, you know, looking to have an affair, but there were things like what your sexual, you know, fantasies were, maybe some of the things that you were into that are not public. You mentioned earlier this sort of idea that, uh, you know, blackmail becomes the attack vector, um, and we've we've seen cases of this already. Um, let's talk about that for a minute. Like, if if you if this has already happened, right? And and the information is already out there, and you're Bob or Mary, um, what do you do? How do you how do you handle the idea that that might come back and bite you in a blackmail kind of style?
1: I think people need to take a step back further, and it's obviously challenging because hindsight's twenty twenty. But I don't think you should ever put information about yourself out there to a third party that you wouldn't want your grandmother to read about in the newspaper because I don't think you can trust a third party to secure your information. And because of that, they, you know, your information security, I believe you're responsible for yourself. And that's why, and I think we'll get a little more into this later, but had Bob and Mary used proper operational security for something that they wanted to keep secret, they could have avoided being in this mess. But unfortunately, the way the system was set up A lot of people set themselves up for a situation in which they could be blackmailed, and anytime you do behavior that you don't want people to find out about, it's unfortunate, but that risk is always going to be there, and I really can't fathom how you would handle it in the event that you were caught doing something that you don't want others to know about, because it's something that people need to be aware of as they put themselves in those situations. Yeah, it's true. It's
0: very sad. I've had... Uh, I've had about four or five conversations in the last couple of weeks where people have come to me and said, "Hey, you know, my name turned up in this thing, and um, you know, what do you do?" And, and you know, I guess I start the conversation with those those friends that have asked, as you know, "Hey, this is it's a little too late to do risk management." Um, I even read a post about that on Twitter that uh, you know somebody else said that you know, that was their strong statement to their friends is that uh, risk management only works on the front end. Um, so you do have to you know, kind of figure out like, okay, um, what happens now? And, and my advice to my friends has been uh, you've got to decide whether the, the risk is worth coming clean and, and you know, disarming any capability uh, for someone to blackmail you by essentially going public with that information or at least public to your, your loved ones um, that would be used against you for leverage or you know um, live with the secret right and and know that the people that you care about could find out um but it is an unfortunate situation for a lot of people and I, i think one of the things that has been very lost in this story is sort of the human impacts of it and um you know with things like the target breach and and other traditional data and identity you know theft breaches Sure, some people have very painful experiences. They, you know, had to spend a lot of time and money to get, you know, things figured out about their identity, their credit card stuff. But now you're seeing like impacts, social impacts, um, loss of friends, loss of family, um, loss of family cohesion. We're going to see divorces. We've seen suicides. Um, So the social impact of what was an isolated data breach is, is just huge, and that's heartbreaking.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, and
0: I, I read an article um, a couple of days ago as well about what happens when um, oppressive regimes uh, perhaps start to mine this data. So, for example, there are places uh, in the world where things like um, adultery are punishable by death or or punishable by very serious types of, of imprisonment um, or, or financial loss. So what happens to the folks that uh, turn up in those, those folks' uh, scope all of a sudden? Um, so, you know, it does take what what we've always thought of as kind of this idea of data breaches as being an isolated, oh, um, you know, you lost your identity, and, and so now there's this, like, identity management process, and, oh, there's this corporate impact process. But now we're starting to really see that turn social and and
1: turn into real life. Yeah, I mean it's definitely an interesting way to look at it because the way we've discussed certain data breaches around here, where if my credit card gets stolen, it really doesn't affect me a whole lot. It's a slight inconvenience, and I get some free credit monitoring. But this, to people who were affected, is just a whole different animal. And you know, I, I'm not in a position to pass judgment on anybody for whatever it was they did and whatever position they were in life to sign up for a service like this, but you know, their lives are not in a position where it was before this all happened. And the people that I really feel bad for, and there has to be a small percentage of individuals that did not sign up for this service. The name and the email address was input by somebody for whatever reason. And I can't imagine how frustrating that would be for an individual that is dealing with the consequences like you mentioned, but didn't actually do anything wrong. They didn't actually sign up for the service. And for somebody like that, I can't imagine how difficult this is because even if it – somebody trusts you and says, I know you wouldn't have signed up for something like that. That would have to be incredibly frustrating.
0: Oh, I'm sure it is. And, and I think as we read some of the online accounts of these, uh, of these folks and listen to the media um, talk to them, it, it is incredibly frustrating and it's very painful. And I'm sure it's somewhat embarrassing and humiliating too, even if uh, even if it wasn't you. And then you do have the humiliation of the people who, who it was. And I think one of the other things that – are sort of disappointing to me is the almost sort of like glee in some parts of the security community and certainly in a lot of the public media to go through and name, you know, publicly shame and name people who are in the database uh, for whatever reason. Um, I was I was really disappointed as a human being and certainly disappointed in the parts of the, the uh, community that did that. I think there's a huge difference in mining that data uh, for commercial clients who ask, you know, or who uh, who maybe you're doing something like reputational protection for, versus uh, you've got some media folks out there who are literally looking up every local celebrity uh, from the person that reads the news to you know the local radio uh, DJs. And just naming and shaming people left and right. And I just think that's – I think it's awful.
1: Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's just the way that our societies become with certain behaviors like this. And it's a risk people take when they put themselves in the public eye. But I think it's important and a lesson that we all can learn from this is be careful when you give your data to a third party. It's like we were discussing earlier with the risk-reward of us being on social media. People need to look at a risk-reward if they're going to sign up for any third-party service where you're giving any information about yourself, even more than PII, where that's what people were dealing with here. You really need to take some time and think about whether or not you're willing to accept that risk for whatever it is you're getting out of giving that information to a third party.
0: Yeah, and I think, um, you know, this sort of leads us to the the next topic to, you know, kind of not beat the dead uh, Ashley Madison horse, but just trying to come to fruition with an understanding of privacy online versus social impacts and and this is huge because there are going to be more Ashley Madison sites there are going to be more applications um that com- you know that that come into our lives where you're going to be able to connect to people um, in real time, and maybe you're going to, you know, you're going to be able to uh, explore areas of your life that you would want to be private. And there's going to be this urge to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe even it's, maybe, you know, some psychologists and sociologists would argue, maybe that's even a helpful urge, right? But there could be a severe penalty to doing this. One of the things that comes to mind right off the bat, I, you know, just on, on Twitter recently, um, somebody was joking about, you know, what if Tinder is next? Um, you know, you've got this like hookup app out there uh, called Tinder, and you've got all kinds of folks, you know, talking about and using uh, this social media platform for a variety of uh, sort of endeavors, um, and and let's call it like new friendships. Yeah, and uh, they're they're exposing a large amount of information about themselves and things that they enjoy in life. And and certainly the things that they may not want other people to know are passing through this channel. Um, It makes for a very delicate target, but at the same time, it maybe also fills at least a social need in that space. So you've got that sort of, there might be value in it. um, And, Yet, at the same time, it represents a very uh, risky sort of approach.
1: Yeah. I mean, it all goes back to that same core problem again. Even with something like that, that's a little less likely that people would judge, but still communications that you would want to keep private as an individual. It's still a risk people take when they sign up for that application. And even something where, let's just say you're a whistleblower, and you sign up and give a notice about an organization you're working for, some sort of agency that affected you in a negative way, and you want to give that communication anonymously and hope that it's going to stay anonymous, but heck, you still give your name, your phone number, and you're really putting that trust in a third party for something like that that's not near as bad of a situation as an Ashley Madison or a Tinder, but you're still putting confidential information about yourself in the hands of somebody else, and it's something that could negatively impact you if that information's leaked, and it's, again, something that people need to always be cautious of. And don't ever assume that a third party has your best interest in mind.
0: Yeah, and even if they do, they could make a mistake. I mean we talked about this at lunch the other day with a couple of other engineers. Um, it, it certainly brings into sort of um, uh, question, what about things like um, an Alcoholics Anonymous application or – Um, something for helping people who are suffering from depression or schizophrenia or some other significant disease. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of applications now that are moving to mobile platforms to allow um, patients to interact, Uh, but that's very private data. And yes, there could be support mechanisms involved with it and there may be a social aspect to it, but at the same time, you have this risk that if if not everyone knows that you have whatever problem it is that you're you're facing in your life, that that could become public, and that that has to weigh in the decision of are you going to take advantage of these applications. Now the sad part of that though, Adam, is for some people that's going to mean not getting treatment, mm-hmm. and and you see like how quickly the pebble dropped at Ashley Madison right? How quickly the ripple effects go out into society. And so somewhere there could be people who are not getting treatment because they make this decision around it. And that, that's huge. So you really do have to sort of weigh that privacy versus social impact versus what are my needs? How, you know, how can they be facilitated? Um, If you're, if, they, if there is someone out there who's struggling with those types
1: of decisions, um, where do they go to get help? It's, and it's a risk they take every time they go to visit the doctor, too. If all that information is stored at the doctor's office and that is leaked somehow, or if they were an Anthem consumer and they know that certain prescriptions were being written to them, unfortunately, that's a risk they faced as well. And the one thing I've noticed within my generation is we're less concerned about privacy overall. Especially when I talk to my parents or other friends of theirs, they're just scared to death somebody's going to get their credit card information or something like that. But I really see a lot of people in my age group that aren't as worried about that, and they aren't as worried about their social behaviors being leaked. You know, they're they're open about the fact that they're getting mental health treatment and things like that. And I think we're going to see a shift as this happens. And I think I'm slightly older than the post-millennial generation, but I really think with them, they're not going to care. And I think there's social media behaviors and things like that that are leaked out and archived going forward. I don't think that's going to stop people from getting employment or running for public office in 20 years. I really don't. I think people are going to just become accustomed to that. So you almost have to wonder if like the Minecraft
0: generation is going to be, uh, you know, completely open around that sort of social norm. And that brings up an interesting take that you know, it, <clears throat> clearly this whole Ashley Madison thing was overhyped and, and there's been, um, you know, there's been such media attention to it. Maybe it's just for, maybe it is age banded. Older, you know, older folks maybe um, have a whole different set of feelings than folks that are in uh, in a, in a generation where they expect less privacy online. I don't know. I can't really answer that, but that is something maybe we could get another – a uh, group of folks on the podcast to explore. But let's talk about that for a minute. What are some of the other things that are out there that um that you see younger folks adopting that older folks are sort of hesitant to do online?
1: I think a lot of it is consumer based. Um even if it's simple as online bill payment and anything around financial information, I think people in, you know, the baby boomer generation are just freaked out by doing But me, I'm actually more paranoid putting a letter in the mail that contains a physical check than I am with an online transaction. I think that's just the way people are shifting. But I even look around the studio that we're sitting in now, and I see three cameras. And all three of those cameras could be connected to the internet at some point. And I think that's something that even our age group is just getting accustomed to as well. Just the fact that they're living their lives more publicly. I know in thinking of all my friends, I would say the average person is not only on one social media platform, but three or four, mm-hmm. and I think people are just enjoying the fact that they're living their lives more publicly and that they're able to share things with their friends that are living around the country or around the world, and by doing that, they're willing to accept that risk. So is this that new age
0: of transparency that uh, you know people in the 70s and 80s uh, were talking about but apparently were you know, 30 years uh, ahead of their time? Do you really... I mean, do you feel like so much of their lives are lived through social media, and with that exposure that it, that it extends that deeply, that things like extramarital relationships or or sexual relationships before you know uh, when they're younger, do you think you really think those things are all becoming transparent socially?
1: I think certain behaviors, like you know, extramarital affairs, anything that they want keep private for whatever reason, that's always going to have to remain that way for the individuals that choose to participate in activities like that. But I really think people in their day-to-day lives for certain things, they just don't care. Mm -hmm. I mean, I look at it every time I make a purchasing decision. You know, I always talk about the fact that I like ride-sharing programs like Uber. I really don't care if a third party knows about the trip that I took. Some people might, but I think that's a generational thing that's affecting who cares about that and who doesn't.
0: And that's very that is very interesting because that's pro- very likely to be true. Um, just uh, last episode, we had Fork uh, on this uh, on this podcast, and um, one of the things that he and I talked about either during the recording or shortly thereafter was just the aggregation of data that was available today about people, um, and and he showed quite a bit of concern about that aggregation. So I think he would he would probably disagree with you. I'm not speaking for uh, Mark, but, um, you know, I think he would disagree with you. And it may be a generational thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very interesting sort of uh, uh, thing to explore. I think um, what is what is really fascinating is the idea of risk assessment as a life skill is starting to, to get like deeper and deeper embedded. And i um, sure it's always been there like, okay, I'm not going to walk under, You know this thing that's on fire, and I'm not going to run with scissors or whatever. Um, But it's starting to extend into the online world too, where day to day, how I use my phone, um, whether or not I put a sticky over the camera, you know, on my laptop, are all starting to come into you know risk assessment, Um, and we're starting to see the formalization of that. Now, you, I I know you happen to be like going through an MBA program right now, Tony. how much of that is talked about in that program? How much of is risk assessment um,
1: you know, discussed? Unfortunately, and I think information security as a whole isn't discussed enough at the college level. Um, and this is a whole nother topic that I think we could riff on for hours, but I don't think people make that conscious decision every time they sign up for an application or a service or anything. Um but No, unfortunately, it's not really talked about much at a collegiate level, but I think people need to look at that more often. I was even considering signing up for a service the other day that would unsubscribe me from a bunch of junk mail. And I thought, wow, that's really great. And I started to look into how the service worked, and it actually looks through all of your email. And to me, I looked at the (laughs) risk-reward of that situation. As much as I hate spam, I wasn't willing to provide all of my email to a third party I know nothing about.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great example. But I and I know that like the it's it's not in the average college classroom. It's certainly not in the high school classroom. It's not even uh, in in younger children, younger than high school uh, classroom. So it, it really is sort of a socially learned behavior. We've got to somehow start to teach younger people. Uh, and hopefully that that trickles upward in the chain about making better online decisions when it comes to privacy. Um, What would you say your number one online privacy concern is right now? Like, is it just how far your information has gone or what,
1: what is it that, that really concerns you about online privacy? It's just interesting working in InfoSec as long as we have, and it's always stereotypical, but I think it makes us a little more cynical about privacy. And because of that, the whole thing just frustrates me because My data is in so many different places that are just completely out of my control, and I know in certain cases how easy it is for an attacker to have it. I don't have a number one overall concern, and I think people are eventually going to have to take the attitude that no communication they do online is private. To the person who's motivated enough for whatever reason that could want access to that communication, it can happen, and I think people are always going to have to accept that risk even if they're sending a text message to their significant other. It's always a possibility that it could be leaked out there. Now, granted, is an attacker gonna care that you send a text message to your wife saying you're running a little late and you'll be home in five minutes? Probably not. but it's something that you always have to be aware of. Yeah, and I mean, that's a
0: great that's a great point. I think we by far overestimate our privacy. I mean, heck, um, the OPM hack took the most sensitive of uh, identity records for you know for government employees and folks that had had clearances. Uh, they're you know their very sensitive information uh, was completely compromised and um, so if we can't protect that how can we possibly believe that we can protect things like uh, emails and and you know the bulk of text information and and what you signed up for on a social network it, it really is um, it, it really is a whole new paradigm that we're gonna have to live with and and uh come to terms with i think one of the interesting talks that i've heard recently there was a ted talk i listened to not so long ago that talked about how um the ubiquity of the internet and and internet access what a you know boon that was to uh general day-to-day life but also what a challenge it created because literally now data is everywhere literally everywhere um, it's in your pocket it's it, you know it's uh, in the airwaves around you it's up in space it's every place um, and that ha- we have to find a way to like communicate to the next generation of folks and, and to you know business owners that we have to start thinking and paying attention to just where that data is how it you know how it proceeds and, and they've got to make some decisions about what they're willing to tolerate
1: yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, it's a consequence that you always have to consider anytime you create data, one way or the other. And, you know, I have friends and family that are still using the flip phone and trying to reduce the amount of sources that they give their information to because of that. So it's some people are taking one extreme all the way to where they don't want to give and allow people to have that risk. So it's interesting to see who's going to end up making that decision as much as they can and revert back to that state just because they're afraid of where all that data could go. It's just interesting to see.
0: Yeah. And I have seen young folks. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I have a friend who has a uh, about a 10 year old um, who is really, really good at online gaming and, and all of that. Um, but at 10, he still reads the terms of service of sites, and and he'll say, you know, no, nah, I don't think I want to do that. I don't like the terms of service. So I think there are. I mean, I think there are folks out there paying attention. We just need to figure out how to like kind of make that more of a life skill. So let's let's switch gears for a minute. If you want to do some of these things online, or let's say you have to do some of these things online, right? Like, um, you shouldn't necessarily avoid getting treatment um, you know for something that could potentially be a life-saving or life-changing event um, so how do you go about that and do it still
1: with a sense of privacy now the analogy I like to use in a situation like this is somebody being an anonymous source for something whether it's a whistleblower like we mentioned or if you're giving information to the press in a country or situation where you would be Prohibited from doing so for one reason or another and in those situations you would do what you can to mitigate the risk that could be giving a confidential name a fake name giving a fake number or a fake email address anything like that that would limit the exposure and limit the possibility of it linking back to you as an individual
0: so certainly I mean it's easy to go out and sign up for Gmail and use their web interface um, and make a fake account there um, you could use things like a prepaid Visa card to uh, link to that fake name to then turn around and, and create uh, at least a payment identity that you could uh, you could receive services with. Um, I I know there are folks that have bought second phones that they uh, essentially you know bought a, a pay as you go plan or a card where you, uh, you use a card for data access um and you pay with cash and they they're using some of that so you could use something like that to get treatment um or to to do some of these things if if you wanted to um you know one of the things that you mentioned is uh the fact that IP addresses might be recorded um you know you could always access the you know sites like this from somewhere other than home and work obviously if you're uh, if, if you're a professional person or pretty much you have a job in any field um, you probably don't want to use your work email address for uh, any of these sorts of things Anything that you wouldn't want to be tracked back um, even using your personal email might be an issue but certainly it is very likely that using your your professional email could be an issue right
1: mm-hmm. absolutely and Anytime you make a decision like that, it's all about considering who it is that would benefit from that information. If you're just an individual who's seeking mental health treatment for one reason or another, take a step back and realize who is actually going to benefit by learning that information. And most likely, they're not some sophisticated attacker with millions of dollars to throw at the problem. So you don't have to get that sophisticated with how you mitigate that risk of somebody finding out you're seeking mental health treatment.
0: Yeah. Or even in this Ashley Madison case, for example, had you just paid with a, you know, prepaid visa that was linked to another email address, um, even if that information leaked out, um, you know, it, it's easily, uh, it's easily obfuscated that it was you from all but, you know, the most, uh, high, you know, the most intensive amount of, of sort of data mining. Mm-hmm. So, There are some of these simple steps that you can take around operational security or OPSEC stuff that seem really elementary. They are more hoops to jump through, but they do offer, you know, some basic levels of protection. Now, are they going to protect you against an oppressive regime? Um, You know, no. Are they going to uh, protect you against uh, an attacker who is focused on uh, finding you in particular Probably not, but they will certainly protect against this casual disclosure like in the Ashley Madison thing. Mm-hmm. Um so there are some things out there and if one of the things if um if you get on Google and put in operational security, uh there's a, a gentleman named the Grug, uh G R U G G. Um Grug is a former Loft member and um he has has a great Presentation and deck out there uh, for operational security, where he talks about opsec for hackers. Um, this is absolutely phenomenal. If you're semi-technical, uh, check that out because I think it 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 really is amazing, and it'll give you uh, a good blow-by-blow blow of how to go about you know obfuscating your identity for some of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I certainly would never hesitate to do those kinds of things to uh you know to receive treatment or or anything like that.
1: Absolutely. I mean anything you can do in a situation like that where you need something to remain confidential. Yeah. It's always worth taking those extra steps because it all, it goes back to the 8020 rule that we discuss a lot. Just doing a little bit can help accomplish a lot when it comes to using proper operational security procedures.
0: Yep. And I do want to um you know I want to be very upfront about the fact we talked about um, you know different anonymous programs to get help um, we are not saying or suggesting that you, that everyone should do that to use those programs um, if you're uh, if you happen to be in a profession where uh, you have a high risk that that sort of information could be used against you these are steps you might consider but if you're not in that high-risk club um, if if you don't live in or work in a scenario where uh, that information could be used against you, please use those applications and seek medical treatment and seek support group help um, without, without even worrying about uh, these kinds of issues. We're not suggesting that every, everybody should jump through these hoops. Um, we're just trying to say that, uh, if you are in a scenario where, uh, you, that sort of information could be used against you and and you're concerned about it, there are methods that you can use to get that kind of treatment, to get that kind of help or to participate, frankly, in any of these sorts of activities, whether that's a nationally Madison kind of thing or a Tinder or, you know, seeking treatment, you can do those things, uh, in a semi safe way.
1: Absolutely. Um, It's not anything that people need to be ashamed of one way or the other. If it's something that they need to hide for one reason or the other, all these rules apply to you regardless of what it is that you don't want available for the general public. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're just information security professionals, and we just want to help you safeguard your data, whatever that is.
0: Yeah, and, you know, in the interest of being good humans, I want everybody to be able to get treatment, and to participate, you know, I, I guess you can think of me as a mindful hedonist. So I want them to, uh, I want them to enjoy their lives, but do so safely, um, and and where safety is their own social and reputational well-being and and physical well-being. So, uh, I'll, I'll with that said, I'll step off my soapbox. So <laughs> we've been riffing on this for like forty-five minutes. We've covered, uh, you know, the the full gamut here from Ashley Madison to OpSec Pony. Is there any last thing that you really want the listeners to understand about this or, or uh, you know, get the last word in about the
1: whole Ashley Madison and online privacy thing? Um, I think if I really just had to have one blanket statement or last word, it would just be to err on the side of caution. Anytime you're sharing data with a third party, just ask yourself, do I need to? And it goes back to even reading the terms of services or anything like that, or the spam email thing that I mentioned earlier. Just ask yourself if it's worth the risk for the reward that you're getting, whatever it is you're signing up for. Wow, enough said. I mean, that's just
0: awesome. I don't have anything to add. So, Pony, um, for those folks who might have just fallen in love with your voice and they just (laughs) think, man, that Pony rocks. I want to talk to him some more.
1: Where can they find you online? Um, I'm on Twitter, and I – Tweet everything randomly from complaining about Cleveland Sports to information security at uh, my Twitter handle is at Adam J Luck. And uh I really think that's the best way to get a hold of me. And I blog pretty frequently for stateofsecurity.com as well. Oh, thanks for the plug there. There you go.
0: And uh you know you can always find me online. I'm at L B Houston. That's L-B-H-U-S-T-O-N. And I'm also at Microsoft, although I'm only part of that. Uh M I C R O S O L V E D. All right, so all of that said, we've riffed on this whole thing. Listeners, thanks so much for uh, checking this out. Uh, Anything else? I mean, otherwise, it's a pretty gorgeous day. Mm -hmm. We're going to go do some stuff? Yeah. You want to hack some stuff? Let's do it. All right. Listeners, we're out. We're going to go rip some stuff up, man. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hey, there's security peeps. This is Brent Houston from Microsolved Inc. and StateofSecurity.com. I wanted to say thank you very much for spending time with us and thanks for listening to this month's episode. If you'd like to learn more about Microsolved Inc., you can do so on the web. We are at Microsolved.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-S-O-L-V-E-D.com or StateofSecurity.com if you'd like to check out our blog. You can also reach out anytime and talk to me on Twitter, I'm at L-B-H-U-S-T-O-N, and I would love to hear from you. Microsoft is, of course, the sponsor of this podcast, and uh, they have a wide variety of security services, from pen testing to application security to policy and process consulting, risk assessment, and a bunch of deeply technical uh, work, all the way down to the circuit level of testing devices. So, over 20 years' experience, if you're interested in, in security services, please check us out, and uh, we'd love to talk to you. Again, that's Microsoft.com, M-I-C-R-O-S-O-L-V-E-D. Until next time, thanks for checking us out on the State of Security.com podcast. And as always, stay safe out there. <music> there, security peeps. It's Brent Houston from the State of StateofSecurity.com podcast. It's time for another State of Security short. And today is a wonderful day. It's been a fantastic afternoon. And I am joined by a return guest to the podcast. A lot of folks have asked for you to come back and spend a little bit of time. Thanks for joining us again with the podcast, John Davis. My pleasure. Anytime. So I think I've been asking a number of folks over the last few months this kind of off-the-cuff question. And I know we've had no prep as with everybody else. So here it is. Just tell me, off the top of your head, what is the number one thing that my listeners should be thinking about in their information security program today?
2: I think the number one thing that they should be thinking about is the underlying fact that there is no 100% security. You know, no matter how good you do, no matter what mechanisms you put in place, no security system is a hundred percent and because of that I've been touting discovery, detection, incident response I think is uh, is one of the key things that's going to be happening in the future especially since we have the internet of things and this profusion of devices that are all internet connected and so uh, The fact that you're going to have incidents and the way to uh, avoid them, detect them, and deal with them, I think is going to become increasingly important as time goes by.
0: Now, you know that's a very, very hard thing for information security people to do, right, is essentially plan for failure.
2: Absolutely. I know, it's the toughest thing. It's the hardest thing to justify to to the CEOs and the managers of business. I mean, when I walk up to them and say, remember, Caveat number one is there's no 100% security. Well, they go, why are you hiring me? <laughs> but we have to do the best we can. Yeah. There's just nothing else you can do. and But we have to be realistic, too. If you have unrealistic expectations of security, then you're just doomed to be disappointed. So this is a very interesting point. So you go into an
0: organization, and on one hand, our job is to help them design the most effective Uh, most cost effective certainly but most effective and efficient security program that we can but on the other hand we really have to say listen you can do all of this great stuff up front and that's fantastic you can focus on prevention detection even have really good recovery processes but you must still plan for failure and you've got to invest in response when that failure
2: comes absolutely absolutely it just uh if you have a good detection system, you have a good incident response system, you're, uh, you're just going to put yourself a leg up. It, it's just being realistic is all.
0: So if you're a young information security person and you're just getting started in this field, you're maybe you're going to a startup and you're their first InfoSec person, how do you carry that message to the board? How do you go all the way to executive management with, yes, we can do some great stuff up front, but man, we got to plan for when things get bad too.
2: Well... I think uh, one of the best things you can do to present information security to the board is show how it actually enables communication. It can actually enable business. It seems contradictory because, you know, you spend your money on security and you don't get any actual tangible return on your investment. You can't see it or put your hands on it. But good security, especially something like a good incident response program, does enable communication. It does enable, uh, it makes sure that only the right people are getting the information and not the right ones, or at least it helps do that. Nothing really ensures everything about it, but it's a big help. And uh, speaking to the business people, just try and come up with some kind of an idea of uh, what that's going to mean from the bottom line standpoint, from the business function standpoint, because that's what they're going to be interested in.
0: Now, I'm gonna, we're trying to keep this to a short uh, five to seven minutes, but let me ask you, there recently has been a little bit of a movement, and I know with a number of our clients, I've had some great discussions about incident response and incident recovery kind of pr- uh, processes and breach management and some of that stuff. One of the newest things that we've started to do with clients when we design their programs is we, we tell them up front, If you've got a two or three or maybe even five really key customers, and if you lost those customers, the business is dead. If you are in a position like that, let's get those customers involved in doing some of the incident response tabletops. Let's let them see that you're working on the program and build a transparent relationship between you and your customers so that if something bad happens, a breach does occur they know and feel comfortable that you have been working you 've been doing the right things you 've been participating because they 've been there and seen it. Are you a fan of that kind of transparency absolutely
2: in fact i 'm a big fan of transparency in everything except the key, the keys to the kingdom I, you know I think your uh, methods your uh, all your uh, uh, policies and procedures and, and everything about your information security program should should be open and free. and Because if you're going to instill trust in somebody, one thing you don't want is to have a bunch of secrets. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, if, if I'm going to trust somebody, I want to know they're being open and honest and transparent with me. And I think that's going to be a big thing in our business.
0: And I know that that's something you and I have talked about before is really the need to... Uh, Not rely on the secrecy of policies and processes and procedures, but that really strengthening them also comes from working with clients and customers and letting them review that and be a part of it and and getting their feedback and how they would feel and, and things that maybe they see that might work for their business, incorporating that into yours. So I know we've talked about that level of transparency, and I'm glad to hear that you support that. And folks, listeners, if you're out there and you're thinking about building an incident response or a breach management program, we urge you to include this kind of communication with your customers. Uh, we think that it is expedient, we think it's prudent, and we think it's ultimately good for business.
2: Absolutely. And don't forget, uh, as we had touched on earlier in this uh, discussion, make the most out of your information security do the things that give you the most bang for the buck. It's sort of like our eighty-twenty rule of information security, you know, where you're spending your money on the things that mean the most. And one of the things that's going to mean the most to you now and in the near future is incident response. Absolutely. Thanks
0: very much for joining us today, John Davis. I really appreciate it. I know you've got a bright yellow shirt on. You look like a happy canary. <laughs> so thanks very much for hanging out with us. I really appreciate it. Listeners, if you're interested, drop us a line on Twitter and we will uh, get John Davis back on the show. We'll have some deeper discussions if you've got topics you'd like to hear us riff on. Other than that, I hope all the listeners have a safe day today. And until next time, we're out of here. Thanks.